while the world is quick to tell you all that it's against, Uptown Church wants you to know we're for. We're for doing what's right and fixing what's wrong. We're for lifting up prayers and breaking down barriers. We're for the brightest, boldest, loneliest, finest, and most flawed among us. And most importantly, we're for you. Uptown Church. In the city. For the city. Well, good morning. It is so good to see you today. I'm Joy Gonzalez, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, and I'm the lead pastor here at Uptown Church. And whether you're joining us here in the room or on a screen somewhere or listening to the podcast, we are so glad that you're here. As Courtney said, we are starting a new sermon series where we are looking at the story of a man named John, a man who many of us now, if you've been in the church, know as the Apostle John, but he followed Jesus in Jesus's earthly ministry and then wrote an eyewitness account about his experience that has been passed on for centuries. So over the next few weeks, as we journey towards Easter, we're going to journey with John and see his journey with Jesus and what it meant for his life and how he believed it impacted all of our lives today. Now, as we um, start this series, I want to tell you a little bit about my wedding day, because natural segue, right? But I got married about 13 years ago, I think. I should check my calendar. But my husband and I got married 13 years ago, and my dream wedding idea was to go to Vegas and elope. My parents, on the other hand, me being the first daughter of four, were like, oh no, you're the guinea pig. We are doing a wedding. We are doing it big, and we're inviting anyone and everyone we have ever met, and this is going to be a big deal, which just did not sound like fun for me. So my mom planned most of it, but there was this little hiccup in all of our wedding plans. See, my husband and I, we're the type of people, we like live by the motto, the more the merrier. So we just, we constantly are like inviting people everywhere. Whatever we're doing, we're like, you should come. You know, we are those people. We just love people, love to be around people. And so we had both recently moved back to our hometowns in preparation for our wedding. So we kept running into people that, you know, we hadn't seen in a while. And it went something like this. Oh my gosh, good to see you. Guess what? Yes, I'm getting married. I know it's beautiful. Ah, and you should come. But we never communicated that to our mothers. So come our wedding day, because we were just out around inviting everyone who would come, we had 50 additional people show up at our wedding that had not RSVP'd to a, a, a wedding where we served dinner. I thought my mom was going to have a heart attack and die that day. <laughs> um, we, we were scrambling, like talking to the venue. Can we get extra tables? Can we get extra seats? The caterer, can you work like a Jesus multiply, multiplying fish and loaves? What can you do? And thankfully, we did not run out of dinner. There was enough dinner for everybody. But we did run out of cake. Um, we did run out of cake. Yeah, about 30 people didn't get cake, and you would think, like, we said there was, like, not wine or something. They were not happy. I even heard about it on my own wedding day. So we ran out of cake, 
And it's funny to think back on that day because one of the very first stories that this man, John, tells about Jesus and his ministry, Jesus goes to a wedding. Like, isn't that so cool to think one of the very first things we learn about Jesus and his disciples is that they go celebrate somebody's wedding. That's a guy I can, like, get behind, you know? He's, like, going and celebrating. But... They have the same dilemma my husband and I have, except instead of running out of cake, they do, in fact, run out of wine, which, like I said, much bigger deal than the cake. But Jesus intervenes, and John tells us this story, and we're going to dig into that story a little bit more in just a minute. But John gives us this story as the first of many stories he tells about Jesus. But there's a few things you need to know about this guy named John. See, when he first started following Jesus, he probably did not get invited to very many weddings because he was a fisherman. And fishermen back in the ancient world, you know, they just weren't on everybody's like socialite, social list. They didn't get invited a lot of places. They pretty much stuck to themselves. Oftentimes, a lot of fishermen took up that career um, simply because it was passed on to them and their family and maybe they didn't have a chance for further education. And so it was kind of just something they did. And it wasn't a highly sought after career. So oftentimes fishermen were looked down upon as people who weren't as smart, weren't as talented, weren't as um, impactful in the world as other people. But Jesus meets this fisherman, actually when he's out fishing one day on the beach, and calls him to follow. And John's kind of taken aback because no rabbi in the Jewish world would have gone out and picked followers from a group of fishermen. They'd be going to the synagogue looking for the smartest and the brightest, looking, you know, for the MacArthur scholars and like, okay, we're going to, you know, build up our, our school of thought but not Jesus. He calls John, this unlikely person, to follow him. So not only did that intrigue John from the very beginning and following Jesus, but you see all throughout John's journey, and it's reflected in this gospel that he gives us much later on, this interest in why would Jesus call me? Why do I get to be part of this bigger story? And he often thought of himself as kind of this bystander on the sidelines, which he actually had a front row seat, who just happened to be at the moment of history when the world changed in the biggest way, recounting and giving to the world this story of Jesus. So that, that's John. And John tells us when he writes his gospel, and there are actually four accounts of the life and times of Jesus, which is staggering. Because in history, in antiquity, there was never more than maybe one account of a historical person's life ever written down, let alone four and passed on century after century after century. So it says a lot about this person of Jesus, that there are so many accounts of his life. Well, it kind of lets us know, too, that we can trust that there's so much information about Jesus out there. And John is one of these people. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And John, when he writes his account, he writes it a little bit different than Matthew and Mark and Luke. They're a little bit more... Um, 
a little bit more set on kind of giving you the details, like the journalistic account of Jesus' life. But John has a different purpose in mind. And this is what John says. Jesus performed many other signs. So this is, this is John's thesis statement of why he's writing this account of Jesus' life. And he wraps it up kind of saying this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. We saw lots of things, so many that they're not all even recorded in this book, which is his account of Jesus. But what I have given you, what is included, what is written here is written so that you may believe. John puts his agenda out there. He's like, here's the deal. I wrote this not just so you would know what happened, but I have the intent purpose of you reading this, you hearing this eyewitness account, and you believing this. I want to convince you and invite you to believe in the person that I have come to believe in. And he says this, why does he want us to believe? He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, is the Messiah, that by believing, we may have life in Jesus' name. See, John had been so shaped and formed by his belief in following Jesus that he had seen not only how it changed his life, but how it changed the world. And so he writes this account with the hope I'm going to lay it all out there so that you too can believe and you too can find the life that I have found. But here's what's so interesting about John talking about belief. I don't know where that word hits for you when someone says, I want you to believe something. I sometimes can get a little skeptical or cautious. I'm like, oh gosh, what cosmetic product do you want me to buy now? And is it clean beauty or is it, you know, like, we all have the friend, right? Okay? And so when someone says, I believe in this and I want you to believe, you almost maybe get the hesitation as, what are you trying to sell me here, John? What, what are you trying to give me here? And what gimmicks do you have for me? And it can stir up this bit of skepticism. And I think that's because in Christianity, we have taken two very common words in our worlds and have used them in a very uncommon, unright way. We have taken belief and faith and made them about hope. I mean, have you ever talked to somebody when you're telling them some doubt you have or question you have about something you read in the Bible or about faith, and they're like, you just got to believe. And you're like, that's not helpful. What does that mean? Or they're like, just have more faith. And you're like, that's a problem. I don't have much faith to begin with. How am I going to have more? We sometimes use these words in Christianity in a way that we don't use them anywhere else in the world. I mean, think about it. If, what are the definitions of belief and faith in the world? To believe something in the world means that you have found evidence for, you have learned something that now you believe in, but you believe in it based on the evidence you have seen, heard, read about, been told about, the evidence you have gathered. You don't blindly believe something. Or if you have faith, it usually connotes like this confidence you have in an idea or a person or a thing, but it, that confidence is usually based on the source in which you've received that information. 
I mean, think about it in school. We all went to school and learned multiplication, and somebody said, eight times eight is 64, and we all said, yep. Did any of you go home and like, okay, I'm going to make eight rows and count out eight, one, two, three? No. We had confidence in the person who shared that information with us, with our teacher. So we believed it. When we get into Christianity, those words are not supposed to take on any different meaning than they have in the real world, but they sometimes do. See, oftentimes, religious um, faith and belief are divorced from reason and confused with hope. And so we ask people just to blindly follow, blindly believe, and have a whole lot more faith, baby. And people are like, uh... Okay, what does, that, what does that mean? And so John, all throughout his gospel, and we're going to see this as we read it, when he talks about belief and faith, this is not what he's talking about. He is not talking about divorcing belief and faith from reason. What John gives us is the evidence by which he was convinced to follow Jesus. See, John isn't going to ask any of us on this journey with Jesus to blindly accept Jesus as the one who can change our life. He says, let me, let me show you. Let me show you what Jesus did for me. Let me show you the journey Jesus took me on. Because I think, I just, I think that if you could see it, if you could hear it, you too might be able then to go on this journey yourself and might find life like you have never, ever been able to imagine. Eternal, abundant, joy-filled, hope-filled life. And so John is going to take us on this journey. And, and this is the process that he goes on. And it makes me think of this quote by a, a famous author, Christian artist and um, apologist. He says this, the reason so many people are easily talked out of Christianity is because they were never talked into it in the first place. The reason so many people were talked out of Christianity and faith or religion was because they were never properly even given like the, like the full scope of what it was. And John would tell you, no, 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 no. I want to lay it all out there for you. I want to give you the chance to be talked into it. Because how many of us have heard the stories of our friends or have felt that same thing? Like, what do you, wait, what? You hear something in church and you think, I, I don't know if I think that. Or you hear somebody say that and, and it doesn't sit well with you. But if we have nothing to then take that statement or what didn't sit well with us or that question back to, to test it up against, we often just end up leaving the whole thing in the first place. And so John's saying, here's, here's what I want to do. I want to talk you into it, whether you've been talked into it before or not. And John's book, he says, this is kind of the process and paradigm he takes us through. He says, there were events that happened like this wedding we're going to talk about in a second, there were events that happened that were signs pointing to something bigger, something bigger happening in the world that then provided evidence to who Jesus was that gave me the confidence to believe that Jesus was indeed who he said he was 
And time and time and time again of experiencing the events, the signs, the evidence, and belief, I came to put my trust in, my faith in, following Jesus. So that's the journey John takes us on in his gospel. And this wedding that we're going to talk about, the wine incident of, you know, the first century, we'll call it, the great wine shortage of the first century. I don't know if you read about that in your history books. John says this is an event and a sign. And I want to just explain something, that a sign is not quite a miracle for John. We've all heard the word miracle if we've been in church. And when you hear the story, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, that's one of those miracles Jesus did. But John wants us to know that this wasn't simply a miracle, meaning for Jesus it wasn't simply some random act of goodness or kindness or abundance, some supernatural thing that Jesus just did because John said, no, it was a sign that pointed to a much larger reality going on in the world. And that sign pointed to who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do in the world. So it wasn't just a random act of goodness or kindness, this miracle per se. It was this sign that pointed to the work that God was doing in the world through Jesus, how God was going to change everything in and through the person of Jesus. So are you ready? Okay. So there is this wedding I told you that Jesus goes to in a place called Cana. And his mom is there and his disciples are there. And weddings in the ancient world were a really big deal. You think weddings are a big deal today? In the ancient world, they lasted like a week sometimes, days at least. It was a big ordeal and party. And so Jesus is invited to this wedding. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Now, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to this wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Jesus' mother looks to him. She just, her gut instinct is there is a crisis. This is embarrassing. You are not supposed to run out of wine. Jesus, you got to do something. One of my favorite pastor friends, he says, what must growing up with Jesus had to have been like that his mom just instantly knew? No wine, talk to Jesus. Like, did she just say, oh, we ran out of milk, you know, could you uh, just do what you do, Jesus? I was like, that's hilarious. Um, So she comes to him and says, you got to solve this problem. And Jesus says this, woman. Do not try that at home. And do not say, well, Jesus said it, Mom. Okay, this sounds very offensive to us in our culture. The Greek for this word that is literally translated woman is not quite like woman. Jesus is not talking disrespectfully to his mom. It would actually be like, ma'am. Like, oh, yes, ma'am. Oh, it's... It is a culturally appropriate and formal way to actually address his mom. So Jesus perks up. Okay, mama said something. Yes, ma'am. He says, woman, why do you involve me in this? My hour has not yet come. 
Basically, Jesus is telling his mom, hey, I'd love to help. Like, you know, I love that journey for you that you're a part of the wedding party. But that's not my journey. Not now. Like, I've come to save the world, but wedding's not in that. You know, like, that's, that's not what God's called me to do, save weddings. I've come for salvation. And I just, I wish I could be a fly in the room to see what his mama said. Like, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. I don't care if you're Jesus. His mom walks away, and this is what she says to all the attendants. She says, just do whatever he tells you to do because he's going to fix the problem. That's a good mom. And so nearby, they noticed there stood six stone water jars, the kinds that were used by the Jewish people for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill these jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. So they did. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water out knew. But then he called the bridegroom aside, the ultimate host of this event, the person who's just been married, and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. I mean, makes sense, you know. They're not going to notice the difference if you drink sin, right? He says, everybody does that. Say, cut some costs, save some money. But you, you've actually saved the best for last. You've actually saved the better wine for now. And it's, if for him, he's expressing like shock at this person's gratitude that you cared so much about your guests that in your generosity, you continue to give them better and better, not less and less. Whereas the world tends to kind of pull back, you continue to lean in to giving the very best. And so he's taken aback by this sort of hospitality and generosity of the guest. So this is Jesus' first miracle, or as John would say, a sign pointing to who Jesus is. And we think like, okay, that's cool. Jesus, in this act of generosity and hospitality, you know, helps these people who are in trouble. But John would say to us, no, there's so much more going on. In fact, John's the only, only one who writes down this story because it impacted him so much. Everybody at that time knew this story. It was popular as a story that was being passed around about Jesus. But John said, this was an incredible moment in, in inaugurating the work of God in the world. See, Jesus said, it was not my time to show the world what I had come for, but in this act, that's exactly what he did. And John said, he did this. He showed the world why he had stepped on the world stage in the most beautiful and ceremonious of ways, but it's so simple, many missed it. It's so simple, we miss it. When you read back through, when he asked the servants to go and grab these jars, 
it says that there were these large stone jars, these basins, that in the Jewish culture would have been used for ceremonial cleansing, but they were empty at the moment. Jesus takes that very thing which represents in these people's world the entire Jewish system, religious system, the sacrificial system, the act of atonement. He takes what literally is an icon and symbol of that and uses that to bring about new wine. In doing so, Jesus is saying, okay, I have come on the scene to literally do something new in the world. I have literally come on the scene to transform the old systems and to bring about new transformation in them to show you and connect you with who God is. They weren't bad systems, but they are not complete. They could only go so far in showing you who God was and leading you and following God. So he literally is brilliant, brilliant. He takes the one thing that represents the old way of relating with God and does a miracle to say, I am here to bridge the gap, to transform every system that has come before me, to be the definitive, definitive mark and representation of God in the world. You want to know who God is? You want to know what God is like? Do you want to know what God is about? Jesus. And so he takes the old and brings about the new. And what's so brilliant about that for you and I is that one thing we know sometimes about the skepticism we might feel or our friends feel in the faith is that oftentimes that skepticism is birthed within. Meaning this, that oftentimes skeptics are made from the inside out in religious systems. That oftentimes we become skeptics or our friends around or the world around us become skeptics of faith and critical or leery of faith because of the system they see as the foundation of faith. Because of the systems we have often put in place to disseminate the good news of God in the world. And Jesus hits right at that. He says there are systems in place, there are ceremonies, there are things that people put in place to, to help people in, in the right way connect with God, but they fall short again and again and again because they are not salvation. I am. And in this brilliant move, Jesus reminds us that so often what we get tripped up on in faith has actually nothing to do with the person of Jesus. Because a lot of us, if we met Jesus at the wedding, if we met Jesus walking down the street, if we sat with Jesus, we'd probably like Jesus. What we don't like, what trips most people up, not everybody, but a lot of people up in our world is what they see representing God, the systems we put around coming to God. Because sometimes the systems we construct, that first off, we have good intention. We set them in place because we want to just give people a journey and a process to go on to find God, to engage with God, to help. 
But what can sometimes happen when we as broken people get involved in that process and we have to constantly be aware of and come back around and around is that sometimes those systems, those processes, those constructions actually block people from engaging with salvation and with hope and with Jesus. So John begins his whole journey This whole journey of getting you and I to believe that we can have life by saying this, I know there are things you get tripped up on. I know there are systems in place that people have put there, maybe with good intentions, but sometimes the good intentions get lost. But I have come on the scene then and I'm here now to continue to point you to Jesus, to continue to be the one, the ultimate source to bring life and hope and healing. Friends, I pray that you'll continue to join me and John on this journey over the next few weeks because John would say, I was just a bystander and I didn't get that some of the systems that were in place were blocking us from actually engaging with the hope of God, that they had lost the heart of God and then Jesus. Then Jesus came and showed us the way. I hope you'll come back as we continue this journey. But that is a starting place I want to leave you with, that Jesus is the way. Jesus doesn't give us a system. In fact, Jesus comes to bring new life to any system, especially any system that would hold people back from encountering the goodness and grace of God. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we pray God, that you would open our eyes today, whether, God, we are growing in our faith and feel like we're experiencing abundant life or we feel like we are hitting up against, God, maybe just personal struggle in our life or skepticism because of the things we have had happen to us or we have seen or heard happen to other people. God, would you come in and remind us That God, following you, knowing you, starts with Jesus. God, would you awaken us once again, fill us with a sense of awe and wonder. And like John, when he first started following Jesus, this curiosity to not give up because of something we have seen or heard, but to continue to follow that you might aliven us and awaken us to who Jesus is and God ultimately your heart for us and the world around us. It's in your name, God, that we pray and believe all of these things. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Want to connect with Uptown Church? Visit UptownChurchDallas.org or follow us on Instagram. And be sure to join us on Sundays at 10 a.m. for in-person worship at House of Blues in Dallas. God is with you. God is for you. Go in peace.